Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky of Break of Day Capital. I talk to leading experts to discuss a wide range of subjects to educate investors on best-in-class practices to build legacy wealth and positively impact communities. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Neil Bawa returning. Neil was a guest on episode five and episode 116 about 17 months ago, and is always a wealth of knowledge. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I strongly suggest you do. You'll still get a ton of value out of them. Neil is a technologist who is universally known in the real estate circles as a mad scientist of multifamily. Neil is a data guru, process freak, and outsourcing expert with over $1 billion in assets in his portfolio. And I love your two mantras. We can only manage what we can measure and data beats gut feeling by a million miles. So welcome, Neil. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Absolutely, Gary. Thanks for having me back on. I'm a nerd. I'm a a geek. I love numbers. My life has been about numbers and I'm a computer science graduate. I've had a successful technology career. Data science is sort of my area of specialization. And what I'm obsessed with is trying to apply data science as many different ways as I can to real estate. I started by doing that in single family real estate while I was running my tech company for 14 years, had a very successful exit in 2013. And by that time, I've already been doing real estate for myself, no investors for 10 years and learn enough so that I could bring in investor money in 2014 for the first time. So 10 years of taking money from investors, 10 years before that, running my own portfolio. So 20 years in real estate, everything driven by data and by analytics. That's what's driven us to have about a thousand investors. They've given us more than 300 million in equity. That's what leads to that $1 billion valuation. Awesome. Well, the number one thing I hear from people, they don't talk about optimism they want to talk about distress. So let's let's jump into the distress, get that out of the way. And particularly, you know, in the office sector where it's going to be interesting how this plays out as far as maybe some smaller banks have to shut down. Does the Fed help them? I'm curious your point of view. So it really, really helps if you let give me a couple of minutes to kind of set the tone with the numbers, right? Because it's very, very easy to either be over bullish or under bullish when you really haven't looked at the numbers. So I've been diving deep into the numbers. So the first thing I said is I need to start with a benchmark. The best benchmark I can think of is 2008. So I said, how much money was at risk in 2008, right? And the, the answer is eight trillion was at risk. We didn't actually lose eight trillion because we adapted, we changed things, we put money in. But the total money at risk was $8 trillion. Now, what's the total money at risk in 2024 and 2025? And the answer is $1.4 trillion. So it's roughly, let's call it 16, 17% of what we saw in 2008. Now, what's interesting 
is that of that money, the 1.4 trillion, the total amount of money that's at risk in multifamily, and I can I'll talk about office next, is $100 million. $100 billion. And I know it sounds like a lot, right? But $100 billion is roughly one and a quarter percent of the risk in 2008. So remember that number, one and a quarter percent of the risk is in multifamily. And this is the maximum risk. Just like I looked at the maximum risk in 2008, I'm looking at the maximum risk of 100 billion. So people are like, this $100 billion number we haven't heard of, where did he come up with that number? So the answer is, I actually extrapolated it from three different places. No one has provided this math, but here's where the math comes from. The United States has 19.6 million structured apartment units. It doesn't count single family rentals. So let's call it 20 million. Let's assume that every single property is 200 units, even though some of them are probably smaller, right? Well, that would mean 100,000 properties, at least 100,000, right? If they're smaller, then would be more, mean more than 100,000. But let's take worst case scenario, there are at least 100,000 of these properties in the United States. Now, what most people have heard of, people on your podcast have commented on this, is that people have repeatedly said that 2,500 to 3,000 properties are in distress or potentially in distress in 2024 and 2025, those two years, right? That's the window. 2,500 to 3,000 properties. Okay, let's take the higher number. 3,000 properties are in distress. Well, if you have a minimum of 100,000 properties in the United States and 3,000 are in distress, then 3% of the multifamily industry is in distress, right? 3%. That number cannot be much higher than 3%. Now, let's assume those 3,000 properties are $30 million each. The actual number is probably closer to 25 million, but we're going to assume that they're $30 million each. Okay, 3,000 multiplied by 30 million is $90 billion. So if Every single property is lost for zero dollars, zero dollars, right? Not like lost at a loss. I'm assuming that they're sold for zero bucks, right? Then the total loss would be 90 billion. And the total loss, so that means it's about 1% of what the potential loss was in 2008. So obviously, these are horrible numbers because if these 90 billion dollars worth of properties were sold at a loss, we would have thousands of investors lose money. Some of them potentially losing all of their money, but many of them losing a portion. So I'm not saying I want to be frivolous about it. I feel the same amount of stress that you feel about it, Gary, and everyone else in the industry feels that stress. But it's very important that when you're feeling stress, you need to be able to step back for a minute and do the math. So when the word distress is used, it is used correctly in one way and used incorrectly in another way. If I say in 2024 and 2025, 3,000 properties are going to be distressed and hundreds or potentially thousands of them will go back to the bank resulting in losses, I'm saying something that's fair. If I say the distress in the multifamily industry is such that prices will be driven down because of these 3,000, because of this 3%, to such a level that prices will actually drop below where they should be going because of interest rates. But right, there's a price decline that already has happened because of interest rates. And that price decline will reverse when interest rates go down over the next two or three years. Right. So now people are saying, no, 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 it's going to get worse than that because of this distress. And when you say that, that is a non-logical statement. It's driven by fear. So the first one, yes, we should all be cognizant of people are going to lose money. The second one, is the chances that we are going to, because of distress, have lower prices extraordinarily small. Yeah, I've never had anyone break it down like that. And that, that's why I have you on, Neil, because you break down you know, all the data, which is fantastic. So yeah, obviously, very, very, very small percentage. And I, I agree with you. The, people talk about this tsunami of like distressed multifamily. That's not happening at all. 
no, there is this potential tsunami of commercial real estate, and we can switch to that, right? But this tsunami of multifamily, just those two words are concatenated together. I think it makes more sense to say that there's a tsunami of office real estate or commercial real estate that's at risk. And we can talk about that and its impact. I don't anticipate that a ton of banks are going to go down because of multifamily, right? Because multifamily occupancy has dropped from 96% to 94.5%, 1.5% from peak in early 2022 when the Fed was dropping money to today when it's a more normal environment, right? So 1.5%. Office occupancy has dropped from just about 90%, right, to between 70 and 80%. So the best markets have dropped 10%. The worst markets have dropped 20%. And the very worst market is heading to 30, and that's San Francisco, right? So understand this, that 1.5% change for us has still led to us suffering, has still led to us having cash flow issues, or in certain cases, that driving our net operating income down enough for us to have issues with refinancing. That's one and a half percent. What happens when it's 10? What happens when it's 20? And what happens when it's San Francisco, right? That's the office market. They are facing the biggest cataclysm that they have faced in their entire history. And you might say, wow, 1.4 trillion. No, it's not. Because that 1.4 trillion includes every kind of real estate, including multifamily. So let's call it $100 billion for multifamily, $100 million for industrial, self-storage. You've got student housing, senior housing, all of that stuff. The portion that is actually office, which is the one at greatest risk, the one that is the true black swan event where you can't really predict what's going to happen, is less than $400 billion. That's the portion that's specific to the office debacle. The other thing that people concatenate is that they take the $1.4 trillion number and then they say... Well, multifamily, the distress is going to be over the next two years. We've had some distress, by the way, in the second half of 2023 already. So we had a few properties go back to the banks, not huge numbers, but few. So if multifamily is in two years, but then they take the the number and then they apply it to commercial real estate, especially to office, which makes no sense. You have to understand this, that in normal times, office is vastly superior to multifamily. The average class C tenant in the United States has $400 in the bank after paying their rent. The average tenant in an office building has half a million dollars, right? So it's very rare for there to be significant defaults from tenants in the office space. And even today, when tenants are not using that space, right, because 30% of their space is probably the needs gone away for 30% of that space because of work from home and continuing work from home, even when they're not paying, there is no evidence that I've seen, and I've studied this, that there's significant defaults. Companies are sucking it up, but they're sucking it up to the end of their lease. And so how can it be two years when the average lease, office lease in the United States is five years long? And the bigger the company, the longer the lease. So it's very common for Facebook and Salesforce and, and Apple to have 10-year leases because they're not going out of business. So they don't mind signing 10-year leases because it gives them lower pricing, right? So the chances that these big companies, the really big companies are going to default on 10-year leases is extremely small. They certainly haven't done it so far, right? So what we're really looking at is small landlords with class B and class C office buildings that have smaller tenants with shorter leases. So this debacle of $400 billion potentially lost in the office market is not over two years, it's over five years, 
right? So that's why these numbers, when you take this $1.4 trillion and you basically firstly apply it to multifamily, which is stupid, and then you apply it over two years, which is equally stupid, that's when people get panicked. Look at the math, do the math, right? So I'm going to assume the worst because I'm actually assuming the worst for the office segment, $400 billion are lost. For multifamily, we'll take an edge in between scenario and say $25 billion are lost because remember, $90 billion of these properties. So if they lose 30% in value or 35% in value when they're going back to the bank, the 30% of 90 million is about 25 billion. So take that 25 billion losses in multifamily. And then we're going to add the worst case scenario for office, which is $400 billion over five years. Well, now we're looking at 425 million. And yes, I'm keeping the other areas aside because they're doing well. So far, industrial is holding up really well. Self-storage is holding up really well. Student housing is doing extremely well. So some of the other asset classes, the likely scenarios are not properties going back to the bank. The likely scenario is investors don't make any money, right? Or investors lose 10%, right? Those are more likely in those other asset classes. It's really the office where you know we're talking about 100% loss and large numbers of properties going back to the bank. And also the banks not being able to sell them because for multifamily, for these other asset classes, the bank might take a property from you that's 30 million and sell it for 27 million. Well, in that case, the bank hasn't lost 30 million, they've lost three. You see what I mean? You really have to look at where the distress is the highest. Same thing will happen for office. So far, office values in the United States have not even dropped by 20%. We're still in the 15% range. Why? Because of that concept of, well, it's so stretched out with the five-year leases. It takes time. So their prices are dropping slower, right? Their lease turnover is so much lower than multifamily. And so prices will drop. Everyone's predicting it, but no one's predicting a 50% drop in office. People are predicting that when we look at the nationwide market in the United States, the drop could be 20 or 30. Those are the numbers that I've seen, 20 or 30. And just so you know, 2020, 2008, the drop nationwide for single family was 29%. No one would give me that number if they didn't have it memorized. People would say 50 or 70. And they would be right. The markets that fell the most, and the market that fell the most is that the one that I invested in 2008. I bought truckloads of homes there. Was Madeira, California. It dropped by 71%. Phoenix dropped by 50. Areas in Florida dropped by 50. And so there were many markets. Vegas dropped by 50. So there were many 50% markets. But the overall number was 29%. And I'm thinking office is going to come in right around that 29% number for its debacle, which is big. It's huge. Bottom line is that if it comes in at that number, there will be certain markets that are more affected than others, San Francisco being the one that's most affected. And then within them, there are going to be certain types of assets that are more affected. So class A brand new assets are actually doing really well. It's the central business district or CBD assets that are lower in quality that nobody wants to rent with anymore because they've got more choices in the class A. So why would they go to these? So it's central business district. Suburban office assets are doing fine. I haven't seen any significant decline in their occupancy. Why? Because suburban office is benefiting from work from home where companies, instead of saying, we're going to have one big blockbuster office in San Francisco, they're saying, "Uh, no, we'll just take 20,000 square feet in Pleasanton and 20,000 square feet in San Jose and we'll spread it out. And that space is a lot cheaper because San Francisco, you're paying $5 a square foot in Pleasanton, you might pay $1.50 a square foot. So companies are fine with that. So because of that, suburban office is doing just fine. So you can have a scenario where there's a 50, 60, 70% drop, and that's what gets all the attention, but the overall number is 29%. So if I use that 29% number, apply it to $1.4 trillion, and then say, how many banks are going to fail in the United States based on this number? I don't think the Federal Reserve has to intervene. 
I think that the feds might help one or two banks that might be systemic, like what happened with Silicon Valley. But I think that most of them will just be allowed to die. Investors will lose money. Banks will go, go out of business. So could be 50 banks over the next two or three years that will go out of business. But that's 1% of the banks in the United States. And it's just business. Just so you know, even in, the, in a peak time, let's call it like booming time, 1999, super boom time, right? Just Google how many banks went out of business in 1999, and you'll see that dozens went out of business. Bad investments are normal. They're part of the cycle. It ha- they happen all the time. And they happen in lots of different things, not just real estate. They happen in oil and in all kinds of other things that people overinvest in. And that causes banks to go out of business. I just, all of the numbers I'm looking at, and I'm saying, even with my worst case assumptions, I don't arrive at a point where this creates a significant banking crisis. It just does not. There's not enough dollars here to create that crisis. Very interesting. Very interesting. I didn't realize so many banks go out of business. You only hear, you know, I'm not into the banking, but you when you hear the, the bigger ones go, that makes a lot of a lot of news. But uh, I didn't a, realize a twenty so billion dollar bank doesn't even make the national news, yeah. right? It's got to be fifty billion or a hundred billion, you know, like Signature or Silicon Valley, like a hundred to two hundred billion dollar banks. Then it makes the news. And if two of them go out of business in the same week, Signature and Silicon Valley, then it makes big news. I'm starting to see a lot of operators, private equity companies come out with distressed funds. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I was actually the first one to talk about this almost a year ago at the Best Ever Conference where I said pref equity funds will come out. So far, very little pref equity has been deployed. And the reason for it is very straightforward. Nobody is going to deploy pref equity if they think that the property is not going to make it. So what we've found is the properties that probably are going to make it, their investors and their GPs have pushed them to that finish line and refinanced. The properties that are probably not going to make it, a lot of pref equity people look at it, but they're not financing it because they're afraid of those properties. And they're like, I won't even get my principal back. So I think what has happened so far, and I'm a little disappointed by it myself because I wanted to play in this space, is there's just not a lot of high quality properties that you can finance at this point of time to take them to perm. There are a couple people that have tried putting pref equity in without the refinance. And that's sort of the odd case because most pref equity funds only want to put money in if they can refinance the property to perm, right? So there's been a few here and a few there, but it's it's not a large amount. So I think that the whole pref equity space is going to be more active in the office space. And in the office space, it's going to be active in a different way with let's just call them cut off your nuts type of terms, right? Where you'll need to cross collateralize. You'll need to say, okay, I'll put money into property A, but you need to collateralize it with property B or property C. And we're going to see a lot more of that next year than this year because the distress in office is really 2025, not 2024. Based on what you've been saying, I'm assuming that you think we're going to avoid a recession, but certainly that gets asked a lot. Curious your thoughts. I mean, last year I was in that camp, those 56% of people that said we will have a recession in 2023, I was there. So clearly I was wrong so far. So this year I'm not forecasting a recession. What I'm actually forecasting is recession-like conditions. So I'm a little bearish compared to some of the other people that have said, look, 
January, we created 300,000 jobs. We're only at 3.7% unemployment. Things are going really well. There's not a lot of layoffs happening. And we've already gotten to the peak of the interest rates. So now rates are going to only go down. So the economy can only get stronger from this point onwards because it gets a tailwind. I don't have any belief in that because my understanding of interest rate hikes is as follows. It takes about nine to 12 months for a rate hike to actually find its way into the economy. It's not an immediate impact. It's, it's immediate to some extent in real estate, but you are, you're asking me an economic question about the United States economy, not about real estate, right? So the US economy, many, many sectors are highly resilient with even increased interest rates. They're very resilient, like food, for example, right? People eat the same amount of food regardless. So because there's combination of different sectors, and it takes nine to 12 months for these interest rates to hit the economy, the maximum impact of these interest rates is actually going to be felt in Q2 this year. So it, because anything that any rate that was raised in Q2 last year, we haven't felt that impact yet. So the highest impact is in Q2. Therefore, we will start to see the economies weaken in Q3 and probably hit bottom in Q4 and then move back up. But I don't think it goes down to a recession level, given that we've managed to do what is absolutely the best case scenario so far. The Federal Reserve had predicted 18 months ago that by now our unemployment rate would be 5.5%. As of today, it's 3.7. And the Fed obviously is very happy about that because they don't want more unemployment. They just need to do whatever necessary to bring inflation down. So the fact that they've managed to bring it down with almost no change in the unemployment rate is great. But it doesn't mean that we won't see recession-like conditions in Q3 and Q4 of this year. It's just nice because if you have two quarters of recession-like conditions, that's a lot better than two quarters of a recession. So last question. I'm bullish. I think now is a really great time to buy. I think I've heard you say that before, but definitely want to get your thoughts on that. It's an absolutely terrific time to buy. I am so annoyed that, you know, what happens sometimes is cycles often in the past used to be 20 years, 30 years. So people would forget lessons. Well, a bunch of the people that are investing today, they remember 2008, right? It's not been that long that distress brings opportunity. And obviously there's some distress here by interest rate, from an interest rate perspective. I am seeing prices in multifamily drop by between 20 and 30%. Now, varies a lot, right? Varies a lot whether the property has, for example, a zoomable debt, it'll probably go down less. If it doesn't, then probably go down more. Certain markets have dropped more than others. Midwest markets haven't dropped much at all. They might be down like 8%. So overall, when you look at it, 20% is a nice round number with 35 being the max. I want to buy as many properties as I can at this point of time. If investors were okay, investing at four and a half cap in early 2022, and you could just wave a wand and $10 million would fall out of a tree. Why the heck would they not be okay with buying at five and a half cap or six or even higher than that at this point when they know that there's tailwinds coming where the last 18 months were all headwinds, right? Now there's tailwinds only because even the Federal Reserve, who is the most, let's call it bearish, says three rate cuts this year, four next year. The market doesn't think that. The market thinks four rate cuts this year, four more next year. So we're looking at basically a 200 basis point swing, which has a huge impact on cap rates, by the way, right? Anyone who says cap rates will not decompress simply has paid no attention to the last 18 months because cap rates have smoothly decompressed in the last 18 months. Every time the Fed raised rates, cap rates have increased. Well, the same thing happens when rates go down, cap rates will compress again. It's just normal. Cap rates basically go up and down based on rates. So these two things are tied together. So if you're like, yeah, but they won't decompress. 
Well, there's no evidence that that will happen. And also, you're not paying any attention to inflation. We've actually managed to get inflation down as of last week to 2.7% from a peak of 9.1. Is there anything in the world economy today that one can point to and say, this is going to cause inflation? I can point to 50 things in the world economy that will cause deflation, especially China, because China obviously causes a lot of the world's inflation because it's the fastest growing large economy in the world. They grow at five, six, seven, eight percent. They're forecasting three and a half, four percent growth. So that's deflationary because there's less demand when the Chinese economy grows less, right? They buy 28 million cars a year, Gary. We buy 14 million. Well, all of a sudden they're saying we're going to buy a lot less cars because our economy is going to grow slowly, right? So demand for everything decreases, right? The Eurozone is barely avoiding recessions. The United States has had by far the world's fastest recovery, right, of any major country you can compare us to, to Canada, to anything in the Eurozone, Japan, India, China, we're the fastest, right? But everybody else is slow. That means worldwide demand is slow. That means supply is high. Well, that usually means low inflation, not high inflation. Well, Neil, always great having you on. Thank you for adding a ton of value on the current market. Where can listeners find out more about you and Grow Capitus? The best way is actually not my company, which is Grow Capitus. The best way is multifamilyu.com. So we do a bunch of webinars every year, which basically takes all this stuff and throws them on screen. So now you're looking at data from Wall Street Journal and different places, 50 different places. And those are very popular webinars. We usually have 15,000 signups in a year. And those are all at a website called multifamily, followed by the letter u.com, multifamily.com. And there are no subscriptions, no upsells, no educational services that we provide other than free webinars. And that's the best place to start engaging with us. And as you do, we'll spend our one minute in those webinars to do a, a sales pitch on our projects. And if you find that interesting, feel free to look at those projects as well. Awesome. Thank you, Neil. This is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Investor Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and leave a review as it will help us reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website at breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.